there. It's Gary Parish. It's Friday, October 12, 2018. Welcome back to the Ion College Basketball Podcast. Matt Norlander is here with me. I'm going to talk to him in just a second. But first, let me tell you about SeatGeek. Buying tickets online uh, can be complicated, but it doesn't have to be. Not when you use SeatGeek. And that's because SeatGeek, uh, what they do is they search multiple ticket sites for you. That way you know you're, you're getting the best prices, you get the best seats, you get the best value. You can find what you want. And then like two clicks later, you're buying tickets. It could not be easier. For instance, let's say you try to go NLCS, ALCS. You want to see Dodgers, Brewers. You want to see Red Sox, Astros. Just go open up that SeatGeek app. I did it earlier today. Type in what you're looking for. Your options are going to pop up. Pick your seats. Buy them. Matter of seconds. It really is simple, simple, simple. So next time you need tickets to anything, basketball, baseball, football, concerts, anything, go to SeatGeek. And don't forget, use the promo code COLLEGEBB. That's COLLEGEBB. You're going to get 20 bucks off your first SeatGeek purchase. So make sure, use uh, promo COLLEGEBB next time you're buying tickets uh, via the SeatGeek app or at SeatGeek.com. That's SeatGeek, millions of tickets in one place. So I'm back in Memphis. I just landed after spending yesterday in Beautiful Rosemont, Illinois at Big Ten Media Day. Norlander is home in Connecticut, but he spent the past three days in lower Manhattan taking in the trials of Jim Gatto, Merle Code, and Christian Dawkins. So, Norlander, let's just uh, dive straight in. You've been in the courtroom. What's the scene in the courtroom? What's the biggest headline from New York City this week? Hey, Parrish, good to be back with you, and uh, glad you're back safe and sound at home. Looking forward to seeing you in a few days down in Florida. The courtroom, I'm glad you bring it up with the courtroom because I do feel like and there's so much to get to. I, I mean, I've got I've got pages of notes here, Paris. We could, we will not, but I I literally could go four hours on this on the past three days alone. Um, I will say that within the courtroom dynamic and what you know we're watching play out uh, versus what you're seeing in tweets and reading in stories, a lot of it is correlating. But one thing in particular. Uh, that I don't think is just yet, and I'm going to write a column on some of this that I that we're going to publish. Um, I think uh, on Monday morning as the trial gets set to resume. So the prosecution is is right now it's bringing its witnesses into the courtroom. That you know Brian Bonin Senior, who we'll talk about, he's a prosecution witness. These compliance directors are prosecution witnesses, and T.J. Gasnola is a prosecution's witness who, like Bowen Senior, cut a deal with the government in an effort not to be uh, put into jail. Uh, Bowen cannot be prosecuted in this case; he has that deal. Gasnola's is not exactly the same. So with all of that, as these prosecution witnesses are talking on the stand when they are speaking to um, the prosecution, the lawyers that are representing the federal government in this case, um, the questions that are coming out uh, from afar, it's, it's almost a bit ironic because we're hearing a lot of the dirt. We're hearing a lot of the bad stuff that's going on, but that stuff needs to be established to build the prosecution and the government's case. And so when those people are on the stand and facing direct examination, there isn't any sort of fight about giving up all the misdeeds that have been done. And yet when they are faced by the defense and their attorneys, obviously it's more stop and go. They're not as um, they're not. <laughs> the words don't come out quite as fluidly because in part because they don't know what kind of questions are going to be answered, but also because they are on the side of the prosecution. And so with that, you've got um, some interesting moments from the defense to uh, a lot of the a lot of the people that have been called to the stand, but you also have a judge here, and this is what is not really 
seeped through yet. You've got a, a judge who is, you know, seen all sorts of crazy, crazy cases. Um, this judge Kaplan, he's 73 years old. Uh, he has overseen, you know, just million, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, worth of, of fraud and insider trading and, and all sorts of stuff. So it is interesting to to try and get inside of his head and wonder what he thinks about this case. And and while it stands on its own grounds, like he has handled just things of so much greater consequence. But uh, the honorary Louis A. Kaplan, uh, who sits at the at the front of the court here, he has admonished the defense a lot, a lot. And while... From afar, it's I'm with you, Parrish, in that this case just it seems like it's on flimsy ground. We've never seen anything like this before, um, and it, you know it's on the government to to prove that Code Gatto and Dawkins in this specific trial were guilty uh, of federal crimes and defrauding the universities. The defense has not called its witnesses yet, and in advance of that, you have Judge Kaplan. Um, sustaining, I would venture, 90% of the objections made by the prosecution, meaning that when the prosecution objects to a question, the judge says, you're correct, that question should not be used and it will not go in the transcript, won't be used on the record, and the witnesses don't even get a chance to respond. And, uh, And so what you have here is a defense trying its best to not just paint a picture of the people that the prosecution has called and how they might not be reliable or how the testimony they're giving is not actually effectively helping the government's case. But you have uh, the prosecution objecting to a lot of questions based on NCAA rules, uh, players that uh, could have been paid, players that TJ Gasnola coached that were 14, 15, 16 years old that he gave money to. Those kind of questions are painting a certain scenario and situation where the plight of teenagers and, and college athletes not getting paid, that's what the defense is trying to do. The judge is not allowing it. So from there, the question becomes, what is the jury thinking about all this right now? Because if you are a juror, and who knows what these people think, I will remind listeners that the jury was selected uh, in part based on their general... I don't give a crap about college athletics. I don't follow it. I couldn't tell you, you know, if Duke and, and UCLA are in the same conference. I don't know, you know, all that kind of stuff. These are people that are not up to snuff on how recruiting works, let alone college basketball on the whole. And so if you're a juror like that, when you are watching the body language of the prosecutors and how the judge is responding to the defense and how the defense lawyers are offering sometimes meandering questions, things that are taking 20 to 25 minutes to get to with bank statements, and they're not really going anywhere. If you were to judge basically only on that right now, you would say the prosecution is undeniably winning at this point. Now, the defense will have its chance to bring up its witnesses, and I'll also add the witnesses for the defense are not going to be as... Uh, lengthy as the prosecution's. Basically, the prosecution is hoping to wrap up by Tuesday, and the defense thinks that it will be done by next Thursday, so it doesn't have a lot to go with there. And, and from there, closing arguments will obviously remain paramount. So before we get into some of the, the, the discussion of what the... Um, of what Gasnola and Bowen Sr. and perhaps some of the compliance directors, even though they weren't as exciting, but did offer some stuff uh, there. I kind of wanted to just lay that out for you, Parrish. I know there's not really much you can respond to because it's from it's within the courtroom, but I did want to put forth that to you because it is interesting to sit in that courtroom for, I mean, God knows how many hours. We do get some breaks here and there, and it's just it's just the defense punching up, going uphill consistently, and it doesn't feel like the scoreboard is in their favor at this point. So... When you say 
um, you feel like the prosecution's winning. You, do you mean that you think we're headed toward a guilty verdict? I will not say that yet for a couple reasons. One, because I don't know, again, how the jurors are taking all this information in and which ways they may or may not be leaning. Uh, but I do think we have to keep in mind that although this case has never been tried, we've not had a case like this before in major college athletics where people are accused of defrauding universities and all this. you got to remember... The, the rate in which prosecution successfully wins cases at this level is insanely high. So if you want to dig your heels in on either side of the argument, I think you've got still a good shot right now at this case. And there is a possibility that when we get to next week and the defense calls its witnesses and it's able to ask its line of questioning, uh, presumably without much objection from the prosecution, and then the tables get turned and the prosecution's got to go after the defense's witnesses, who we don't know yet. I don't know who's going to be called. Uh, Perhaps the judge will be... um, uh, similar in tone uh, and message to the prosecution that he's been to with the defense. I, I don't see that necessarily being the case. He is considered a conservative judge as is. So I think that's the one part of this case that we haven't seen discussed yet that is a very heavy element in the courtroom. Um, and it could prove why next week could be pivotal. Um, they also, you know, one of the uh, the idioms, I guess, of, of you know, major major court cases and just going to trial is, you know, jurors have a tendency to make their decisions based on how they feel about the attorneys, not necessarily the people on trial or the witnesses or the judges or anything, how how the attorneys uh, handle themselves, ask their questions, the questions they ask, how they address the jury, that can sometimes have a very influential effect on juries as a whole. And at this point, um, with what I saw in the court this week, I would I would say that the prosecution is coming out looking better than the defense. Well, one thing I would point out, because somebody pointed it out to me, you mentioned that the the feds have a conviction rate that's uh, that's that's astronomically high. I know you didn't use that word, but um, and it, it is it's above ninety percent. That's what you always hear. If the, the you know the feds have a conviction rate above ninety percent, um, somebody emailed me and said that is technically true but somewhat misleading because that includes all of the cases where people just, they don't even go to trial. Okay. Uh, when, when you actually go to trial, it's about a coin flip situation is what I was told from a guilty night, guilty perspective. So the feds, if they charge you, they're going to get a conviction against you at a rate above 90% because most people realize uh, I'm, I'm effed. There's nothing I can do. We just got to reach a deal. I can't go to trial. I got no chance of winning. But the, for the people, and Merle Coe, Jim Gatto, and, and Christian Dawkins would, would fall into this category, for the people who actually say, you know what, we can beat this. We're going to go to trial. Then it becomes like a coin flip situation of, of whether you are found, uh, ultimately found guilty or not guilty. That, that's at least what I was, I was, I was told. I do think that's, that's worth pointing out. Uh, ultimately, it seems the defense is just going to try to argue these aren't crimes, you know, and 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 whether that will resonate with the jury or not, how could we know? Um, it, it it does resonate with me, but I'm somebody who's covered college athletics for 20 years. Uh, you know, to, the people in the jury are. I, I was talking to somebody the other day. I was like, you have to understand, based on what I've read about the the jurors, like they might not know who John Calipari is. Correct. Like if you said, like like if you said, hey. Um, what do you, who do you think is going to be good in college basketball this year? They'd be like, I don't know. I, no, I don't know. You know, hey, who do you think is a better recruiter, Mike Krzyzewski or John Calipari? 
uh, who are those people again? Where do they coach? Like these people come to this uh, case from a, uh, a uh, from a, a place where it, it is is completely opposite where we come from. Like we have a, a an understanding of college basketball and the and the characters involved, and they just don't. And so that that's what makes it so difficult to try to predict how this is resonating with them. But I know how it resonates with me. Um, you know, I I I I don't pretend to be a legal mind, but the argument that these are NCAA violations, not broken laws um that resonates with me uh, I, uh, as far as what happens with gatto code christian dawkins guilty not guilty well we'll see and what one of the points i've made consistently is that um they're the ones on trial so they matter in that way but ultimately what matters to people who would listen to uh, a college basketball podcast is like what happens to the schools involved who gets roped into this and from that perspective i would imagine though there's nobody connected to kansas on trial here and nobody connected to arizona on trial here it's not been a good week for kansas and arizona would you agree with that I would agree with that. It has not been uh, a good week for those schools. Hasn't been a good week for NC State. Um, when you've got a government witness admitting to paying the families and or guardians of five uh, college athletes, one of whom is still active, that is Silvio D'Souza at Kansas, it's not a good look. Um, it's something that you have to overcome from a public relations standpoint. And frankly, it's something that... Uh, they none of those schools ever fully will overcome overall. Um, so that is, I think that is a pretty big takeaway from this week, Parish. Um, within the within the details of all that, uh, we can we can get into that and what these witnesses have said. But I, I think that the damage done under oath, under testimony, some of which um, has already been the evidence of which has already been corroborated, uh, others evidence which still needs to be uh i do think ultimately you will see sanctions put on these programs but as a reminder to listeners those sanctions will not come until later in my opinion uh because this trial on its own is its own entity but the story the case also connects the other two trials and i do not think you'll have a situation in which the ncaa first is even allowed to do this by the federal government but two would even want to do this because it wants to see what comes out in the truck person trial, and then the other three assistants whose trial will begin in mid-April of 2019. So you're right. It hasn't been a good uh, week overall. Do you, like, I don't really know where to go here. I mean, I can, I can. Well, let's, let's my... just stop here for a second okay. on, on Kansas and Arizona, because their fans, and I haven't even, I, I really tweeted about it, but their fans at both schools are, like, interpreting what's happening in this courtroom way differently than the rest of the country. Like, you know, at Kansas, they're saying, see, T.J. Gasnola says Bill Self didn't know and Curtis Townsend didn't know and nobody knew. But you've also got T.J. saying, you know, in a report, I told Bill Self, we're like, we're here to help. You know, like, mm -hmm. perhaps he just meant, like, with, uh, you know, encouragement and, 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 and you know, whatever. But, like, uh, we're here to help coming from T.J. Gasnola. Uh, means a certain thing, I think. And then um, at Arizona, they're like, okay, DeAndre Ayton got some money, but it came from Adidas, and we're a Nike school. And, 
and, and like standing up saying, see, there's still nothing that shows we did anything wrong. And I know there's still nothing that technically and undeniably shows that you did anything wrong. But best I can tell, every single person who's caught on a wiretap is saying Arizona's buying any, anybody. Hey, Nasir Little, Arizona will pay. Brian Bowen, Arizona will pay. Uh, you know, DeAndre Ayton, Arizona, you know, they end up with, 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 with DeAndre Ayton. And by the way, I know that the only money connected to Ayton at this point is $15,000 that TJ Gasnola gave Larnell, his buddy, which is the funniest thing in the world to me. Mm-hmm. Like just Larnell just getting $15,000 from TJ when DeAndre Ayton's a junior in high school. But, I mean, so what are we assuming? That Adidas gave DeAndre Ayton's circle fifteen grand, and then he went to a non-Adidas school for free? I mean, maybe, maybe, but like, you you wouldn't believe it about anybody else if you if you if that's what you believe if you're an Arizona fan, you sure as hell wouldn't believe it if if this same story was about uh, UCLA. It, it just sort of flies in the face of common sense that he'd get fifteen thousand dollars from Adidas, and then go somewhere other than an Adidas school for zero. Like that, that, that I don't know that I'll ever be able to prove anything, but like that doesn't really make sense. And the idea that, you know, you could be getting uh, Billy Preston, Dodge Charger, you know, TJ Gasnola's involved in paying, uh, same thing, DeSeuss involved in paying, like you really be completely in the dark. Again, it's possible nobody will be able, to be, able to be able to prove this stuff, what somebody did and did not know, but it sure looks a certain way. I guess that's my point. Certainly, and there was a moment on the stand with Gasnola where he was asked about Nike and Under Armour and the nature of their business as it was similar to what Adidas was doing and what Gasnola was doing, and um, I don't have the question in my notes uh, that was asked to him, but the nature of the question was basically getting at, you know, at, at certain times, uh, was it your opinion and, and your opinion uh, of your colleagues and what's, what's been referred to as the Black Ops Group, uh, which was a handful of Adidas employees that were in the know to varying degrees of paying players and their families. All right. You know, was it your understanding that this was happening at Nike and Under Armour and this created a competitive environment to recruit players? And Gastonola obviously replied yes to that. So it stands to reason uh, that any of the players that have been paid and and have been uh, said under oath to have been paid uh, or their families have, um, if they wound up in other spots, you know, you'd have to be... (laughs) I'm being generous with my language here. You'd have to be completely naive <laughs> to think that, that <laughs> like, that's like, not yeah, the case. Let, let me mean, just stop you here. I'll ask you the question. Does it make any sense to you? Because here's what we know, matter of fact. T.J. Gasnola gave DeAndre Ayton's circle of friends, specifically Larnell, who I love, 15 grand. Does it make any sense DeAndre Ayton then went to a non-Adidas school for free? Does that it, make any it sense? It does not stand to reason, Parrish. It just it doesn't. doesn't make sense. It does not. It doesn't. Okay. Um, and... I I wouldn't be surprised, you know, you and I will be in Florida, so I'll just uh, disclosure for the listeners, I will not be at the trial um, Monday through Wednesday of next week. Thursday, we'll see how it goes. But it wouldn't surprise me if, if more about Aiton uh, came up next week. I think that there is the possibility for that. Um, all right. You want to get into the Gasnola stuff here? I mean, Bowen Sr.'s got some good stuff. There's even stuff that I didn't tweet about that I didn't get into my stories, one of which is... Code and Paris, I'm buried in my notes here. It's Code and I think Dawkins 
on a wiretap call, and they're discussing the fact that they don't know who one of these guys is in this deal, and the guy is the undercover agent. And so Code is talking about how uncomfortable he is. Oh, man, where is this quote? I got to find it. He's basically saying... I don't know who this guy is. I can't find anything about him on the internet. And that, you know, he's he's dropping curse words. And that, you know, effing scares me, basically. Um, so at a certain point, they, uh, yeah, I got it right here. Hold on. Let me just read this part here. This is a call on July 24th, 2017, between Christian Jawkins and Merle Code. Again, both defendants in this case. Um, they have a meeting on the 28th and 29th upcoming with the undercover officer who obviously they don't know to be the undercover officer. And this is Co talking to Dawkins. He says, you and I need to protect ourselves. You and I need to get some background info on this guy. And uh, the guy's name is Jeff. Uh, Code, we need to do some real digging. I just don't want to be in no BS. Uh, you need to use extra caution. And then Code goes, I look up this guy's name, and I can't find nothing on him. That S is really, really concerning to me. Um, and then Code starts going, getting into how he knows some, some private investigators that so he can get it to look into him. And remember, this is July 24th, so we are still two months out from the case breaking. Um, this is in the middle of the live recruiting period, or near the end of it, I should say. Um, and it's uh, it, it's just... Damn interesting, but it didn't really fit into the stories I was writing. Code also says, um, I can pay somebody who's got access to like the, how the federal government can look people up. I don't, I don't need to see, um, you know, effing, uh, you know, pictures of him at home or anything, but we can look into this guy. So you already had the defendants in this case, and they're being wiretapped, unbeknownst to their knowledge at this point. Um, code, at the very least, starts to suspect something is up. And the interesting thing about Code Dawkins Gasnola, Gatto, whose name is like at the top of the ledger on this trial, but who to this point, through a lot of wiretap phone calls and text messages, Gatto does not display outright panic or suspicion at things. He's not like happily naive and just like he's not doing that, but you get a lot of like Gasnola pissed off that Dawkins is talking about the $100,000 payment to, and try and follow me here, listeners, because I know there's a lot of characters, to James Brad Augustine. If that name rings a bell, he was an AAU coach in Florida who coached Nasir Little. Well, James Brad Augustine gets wind from Christian Dawkins that Brian Bowen's family was paid $100,000 to go to Louisville, and now James Brad Augustine is trying to build up his own AAU program, and in doing that, trying to get rich off of selling Nasir Little potentially to Arizona or Miami. So James Brad Augustine approaches TJ Gasnola at Adidas Nations in 2017. They, I believe it's the first time they've ever met. Okay, So he goes up to Gasnola, and for those who don't know Gasnola, this is a guy who looks the part. He's at a central casting. Um, we have seen him at these summer events every year since we've been doing this essentially and he's you know he's like 64260 with a goatee like you you know he he looks the part and just to picture this AAU coach going up to Gasnola and saying listen man I know the deal that was set up with Bowen I think we might you might be able to get some sort of same accommodation here for little etc cetera, etc cetera. well then Gasnola's thrown cuz he then goes and talks on a wiretap call and says this guy knew the deal with Bowen. He knew the number, and I sure as hell didn't tell him. 
and he accuses Dawkins, correctfully so, of running his mouth on this. And so Gasnola starts to get panicked because when you're doing this, obviously you need to keep the, the circle extremely tight. And it's caught on text and wiretaps. Gasnola saying, the only people that know about this are me and you, referring to Dawkins, Gatto, and Code. He also says Kenny Johnson, but Dawkins refutes that Kenny Johnson knows. So that is actually a dangling thread. We don't know really the truth there, whether or not. I don't even know what I believe, whether Kenny did or did not know. Gasnola testifies that he did that Patino didn't know. The defense is trying to establish that Patino does know, but that was an unresolved thread from Thursday. But eventually, the, if you step back and look at this, what what happens near the final eight weeks of this process is you've got guys running different cons on each other, but not necessarily maliciously. You have people wanting to be involved in the payment to players and their families because ultimately down the road, there's a huge stake in that for them. If they stay with Adidas, sign with certain agents, and and I don't know if you want to describe it as kickbacks coming eventually, but obviously there are payoffs. So what you had was this black ops group assigned to different schools, and with, because they were assigned to different schools, they'd eventually be associated with different kinds of players who would wind up going to one school or the other. But then you've got Dawkins, who's only like 24, 25 years old when this is all happening. So he's he's a bit of a young pup, and he's, he's definitely um, kind of playing the role more than he's actually is fitting into it, if that makes any sort of sense. And suddenly you've got a lot of paranoia with all of these guys. And, and sure enough, the paranoia was warranted because eventually they, they would be busted. Uh, if you're asking why Gasnola is not a defendant in this trial... Um, well, one, <laughs> he, he, he cooperated with the government. Uh, two, the evidence against him was not as direct and strong initially as the evidence against the other guys in the trial. Gasnola's on a plane the day the story breaks. When the story breaks, the only, he testified that the people he reached out to were his attorney and Rick Pitino. Now, why would he reach out to Rick Pitino? He said his mind was going crazy. He didn't know what to think. And... He basically, I think he was worried that Rick was going to get caught up in this and wanted to make sure that he did not know. But at the same time, he never, at least he has not testified to this. If if he did, if if he did this, the prosecution is not having, is not asking this question to set this up. If he ever discussed uh, the legitimacy of Bowen's deal, that was never brought up altogether. But what Gasnola and Brian Bowen Sr. have in common is they both get approached by the feds, not on the same day, but Gasnola got, uh, the the government came to his house soon thereafter. They both lie to the FBI initially. Uh, how much, I don't know. What details, I don't know. But they both lie about the nature of um, what each of them was doing that was against NCAA rules at the very least and potentially against federal, federal law. Gasnola and Bowen continue to lie until basically they're pinned against the wall and they have no choice. It's like, you're either going to cut a deal or you're going to trial on this and, you're st- and you stand to, to spend years and years in jail, okay? So Gasnola, um, he eventually cuts the deal. Hold on. He cuts his deal in... i got to go back all the way to the start of his testimony. Um, he cuts the deal... Uh, he pleads guilty on March 30th, 2018 of this year. So it takes that long. In between all of that, by the way, he is having his attorney write a falsified letter to Kansas to try and help Billy Preston's situation. Meanwhile, Preston's mother is involved in an investigation because Preston gets into a minor one-car accident with 
what we now know is a Dodge Charger that was apparently registered to Preston's great-grandmother, which I'm not saying wasn't the case. I'm saying that's an amazing visual that there is a minimum 75-year-old woman driving around, I believe, Florida with a Dodge Charger. Incredible. Um, so that, that whole process is getting trying to get figured out. And then Kansas investigates, and they say, okay. Now we need to figure out if if you got paid, who got money. The Ca- Gasnola lands on their radar because Gasnola has had a longstanding relationship with the Kansas coaching staff. Okay, and so then Preston's mother, again, this is all happening well before Gasnola agrees to side saddle up with the feds. <laughs> Preston's mother, who has a female companion in life, goes to Gasnola and says. I'm going to tell the Kansas investigators, you and I have been intimate, we've been dating, we've been fooling around, and that's going to make the fact that you paid me $90,000 okay. Meanwhile, Gasnola has a fiancé of his own, money of which has been uh, taken from his account into his fiancé's account as a means to try and hide it, and that's not been brought up in trial, but frankly, it's you put the pieces together, the government clearly leaned on his fiancé, and that was also what... Uh, what moved Gasnola to become a government witness in this because she had tens and thousands of dollars uh, that was money unaccounted for, didn't pay taxes on, illegally uh, obtained by Gasnola. Um, That's another part of this. So anyway, that plan (laughs) falls through. Preston never plays last year. We know the reason now. I mean, we knew it, but now we know it, know it. The reason Preston never plays is because his mother and uh, her partner accept $90,000 from Gasnola some of which was delivered in hotel rooms in New York City and Las Vegas, some of which was got wired because, quote, Gasnola said he got lazy. He didn't want to make the trips in person and deliver all of this cash. Eventually, the government pins him up against the wall, and uh, and now he's he's cooperating on behalf of them, and in doing so has admitted to paying the families of Dennis Smith Jr., Preston, uh, current uh, Kansas uh, player Silvio D'Souza, Brian Bowen Sr., and DeAndre Ayton's uh, family friend, the money of which was supposed to be delivered to Ayton's uh, mother. So uh, we don't have any sort of corroboration that the money was in fact delivered to his mother, but you put the pieces together if you so please. Parrish, I'm going to toss it back over to you because we can spin 74 different ways right now. Uh, TJ Gasnola is somebody I've known for like 15 years because, and he is, like he looks the part. If you were trying, and I don't mean to stereotype here, but if you were trying to cast like the shady grassroots basketball guy, like he looks He's the guy you'd put in the movie. And so it's it's sort of um, interesting how he's the guy who ends up in this situation. But when I was the Memphis beat writer, he was um, around the Memphis program a lot. You can take that however you want to. But he was in Memphis a whole lot because he was the connection between the Memphis staff and Antonio Anderson, who went on uh, to play four years at the University of Memphis. He was on you know those those great teams that went to – I, I, you know, the, a championship game, uh, maybe I think three elite eights and four sweet 16s championship game appearance. He led the, the Tigers minutes played every single year, even though they had Sean Williams, they had Darius Washington, they had Derek Rose, they had Tyreek Evans all while he was there. Antonio Anderson led the team in minutes played every single season. He was a, a very good college basketball player. And so his quote unquote guy was TJ. So TJ was in Memphis all the time. And I think he was a high school classmate with Derek Kellogg, who was on the Memphis staff at the time, then went on to be head coach at UMass. Now he's at uh, LIU Brooklyn. And so I, you know, I, my, my history with TJ goes, goes way back. And 
Um, I'll just say uh, I'm not surprised that he got c- caught up in this kind of stuff because uh, he's been the, the, the most interesting witness so far because he's talking about money I delivered, mm-hmm. deals I did. And though he has claimed as it relates to Kansas, you know, Bill Self didn't know, the Kansas staff didn't know, um, that that's great for for Bill and Curtis Townsend and all those guys. Like if if I were on staff at Kansas, I would also want TJ saying we didn't know anything about it. But you, do you, does the ca- casual college basketball fan believe that? Like, do you believe that? Uh, no. Um, and even other stuff, I'll let you continue here, Parrish. But even others, they're they're just little drips, small things coming out in the trial, like the fact that the defense asked, you know, before Bill Self's Hall of Fame induction. Is it not true that you and your fiance uh, went out to dinner uh, with Bill Self, and there was someone else in that, and in my Agato, I believe, uh, and I believe this is the the, the day before uh, the the induction. He says, "Yes, that is true." So it's just little things like that um, that the, the defense is trying to uh, take out of Gastonola's testimony, because again, just to remind listeners, like when Gastonola is being questioned by the prosecution, he knows the questions that are coming. He's helpful. He's quick. He's direct. When it's the defense. You see a little more of the imposing figure. His body language has changed. The way that he responds is not as quick. Um, he is asking the defense to repeat questions often. Sometimes he is pausing, in my opinion, to wait and see if the prosecution will object. Um, it's a fascinating dynamic that plays out. Continue. Um, the other thing you said that I thought was interesting is, and I, I read this when you guys tweeted it, you and Dan Wetzor have both been in the courtroom, um, that on the day the scandal breaks and the indictments are made public you know he calls rick patino and again i I do think it's fair to point out that still to this day october 12 2018 there is still no evidence whatsoever that rick patino knew anything about this i mean you can either believe him or not believe him that's up to you but like the idea that he's called on a wiretap or there's some incriminating text message or there's somebody actually even saying Rick Pitino knew that does not exist. So so that's worth pointing out. But why are you calling Rick Pitino if Rick Pitino doesn't know nothing about nothing? Uh, I, I will answer the question. Um, the reason why he's calling Pitino, and again, these are things he's saying under oath. A um, couple things on Pitino here. I'll answer the question, but first I want to bring this up. On Tuesday, there was a call between Code and Dawkins that was also played, a separate call where Dawkins alleges uh, Patino knows and Code says he knows, but he doesn't know plausible deniability. So they get into some of that overall. And then Gasnola has been asked uh, a couple of times about did he let Patino know, did he not let him know? Because the prosecution is basically saying, you know, by him not letting Patino know and keeping this from Patino and hiding it, he, he is defrauding He's defrauding the school. He's defrauding the university. And a text message was brought up where it's in my story. It's the first time I've actually bracketed thumbs up emoji, I believe, in a, in a piece of copy. And it's Gasnola saying, listen, Bo- you know, Hall of Famer, hope you're well. Bone will help. Talk soon. Patino gives a thumbs up. And then on, within context of that being brought into evidence, it's Gasnola saying, I did not tell Patino. I kept this from him. I didn't, wanna, I didn't want him to know because if he knew, um, you know, Bowen would be ineligible. The, the program of Patino could come under attack. So there's that, right? That's what he's saying under, 
under oath. He's claimed in, in multiple different ways that that is the case. But obviously, when the, when the trial breaks, uh, Gasnola is frantic because he knows that Bowen was paid, Bowen's father was paid, and there was a $100,000 plan uh, set up with all of this stuff. And I think he is concerned... Whether or not he believes Patino, maybe he thinks Patino knows, but he's never talked with him explicitly about it. I mean, he said that so many times that I do, I, I do believe that's the case. But I think he's trying to get a feel in that moment, Parrish, when the story is breaking September 26, 2017. Okay, um, you know, the, the sheath is coming down here. Uh, let me just check in with Rick, see what he says. And Patino indicates really nothing in that moment. So I think that's part of it because another piece of context here is that Gasnola wasn't really involved in the Bowen deal all that much the way that he was the other ones. And he even said in court that he was, well, he wanted to feel like he was a part of it though. He wanted to inject himself into it. I mentioned before how these guys were kind of running like mini cons on each other or some were stepping on one turf over the other. That was the case with Gasnola and Bowen to an extent. And so I think he just had some concern that the, you know, with him himself, like the two most prominent, uh, important coaches to Adidas, um, I think he might have gotten red in the face as that story was breaking, and that's why he did it. That's one I'll, reason. I'll buy that. I'll buy that. Um, I, I, you know, w- with Patino, because, uh, you you know, uh, what you said is that, you know, he may have known, but TJ has made it clear he never talked about it explicitly with him i was obviously at big 10 media yesterday and the big 10 head coach that i was talking with off camera because i was there doing uh sit down one-on-one interviews on camera with not every coach but most of the coaches everybody from uh matt painter to mark turgeon tom izzo john beeline archie miller brad underwood uh they and it was all being done for cbs sports hq so if you're interested in any of that and i sat down with ethan hap carson edwards um anthony cowan so on and so forth um all of those interviews are are over at cbs sports hq right now but off camera i was talking to one big 10 coach and we weren't talking specifically about patino and the adidas guys i think we were actually talking about kansas and the adidas guys but the point he made is these guys can honestly, under oath, say I never told Rick Patino this or I never told Bill Self that because you wouldn't. You wouldn't talk about it because the coaches don't want to hear it. The coaches want you to do what you're doing, but they don't want to hear it because they want to still be able to, yeah, have plausible de- deniability. But even more than that, they want to be able to, on some level, look themselves in the mirror and not see themselves as a cheater. So... When TJ Gasnola tells you, hey, I, I, I'm going to help you with this or let me work on that, you know what that means. But but nothing further is said because nothing for, further needs to be said. And so it is why I, I, I find TJ believable when he says, I didn't tell Bill Self or I didn't tell Rick Pitino. Uh, but I don't think that necessarily means the Kansas staff didn't know or the Louisville staff didn't know, if that makes sense. It does make sense, um, and it's part of what. Yeah, because the, the thing this guy said was, it, like, he actually said, if 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 one of my shoe company guys was out there working for me, and it was a character like T.J. Gasnola, um, if he's saying, "Hey, listen, Coach, um, this five-star kid, he's on the market. I know you're involved. I'm gonna help you with that. Like, you know, um, Adidas is here to help." Um, I'm going to, I'm, you know, I've got a relationship with the family. And so just let me work on that and see if I can 
you know, see what I can get done. The guy said, I would I know how I interpret that. I interpret it as they're gonna get they're gonna get down and go out there and try to get this done for me in whatever way they need to do it. I don't need to know, but I know I know my guys out there working for me. And you know what that means. It doesn't mean like mm-hmm. I'm just going to send a text message and see if I can get you an official visit. It means I'm going to get out there and work for you and try to get this done. And so I think these things can be true, that nobody ever told Bill Self, this is what we are doing for Sylvia D'Souza, this is what we're doing for Billy Preston, and that nobody ever told Rick Pitino, this is what we're doing for Brian Bowen. But that doesn't necessarily mean they didn't know what was going on. They might not have known the specifics because they didn't need to know, didn't want to know. But it, it's hard to believe, uh, for me at least, and I think for most people, it's hard to believe that you wouldn't have a, a pretty good idea of what's going on given how long you've been in the business of high-level recruiting. And Yes, and Gasnola himself, you know, he – he, you know, he passed bad checks and committed larceny and fraud in his twenties. Um, you know, evaded doing taxes. Uh, he, he is being painted uh, as as not a flattering character here. Um, and with that as a fact, you know, just think about how many people in your own life you would you would trust, even in an informal business capacity like that. I mean that this is just this is what the sport is at a certain extent. It just is, okay? And to anyone whose schools haven't been affected by that, if if you root for a school that is considered of top 50 variety, you know, at minimum, um just understand that that this has been happening uh, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, uh, obviously for decades we're not hitting on on new ground there. Um if I may perish, let me just real quick we talked on the press and stuff mostly. I won't I, I won't do too much in that, but I just want to real quick and on the other four players that Gasnola uh, testified to uh, to paying their families. Um, Bowen Jr. It's a whole long sordid affair. Um, you know, it starts when he's uh, on an AU team uh, at 15 years old, <laughs> and in fact. Uh, Merle Coates Sr., who is a judge in South Carolina, is also defending his son in this case. Went after Bowen Sr. early in the week and uh, incredible five minutes of of cross-examination. I mean, this was not long. It was, In fact, it was amazing when you look at the way all of the other defense lawyers and prosecution lawyers are preparing their questions, what they're going up there with, just binders... <laughs> Two feet deep, it feels like. I'm Borzello and I were talking. We're convinced that the legal community alone will ensure that paper companies exist ad infinitum. The amount of paperwork that is involved in this case is suffocating. And yet here you have Merle Code Sr. with like four, four loose-leaf pieces of paper, bang, 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 quick quick questions. And he basically, he's like, is it true then that you, because of your son's talent, you pimped him out since he was 15? Objection, sir. Incredible. There was... Um, a lurid accusation about Bowen Sr. being in New York and looking uh, to find some companionship that I won't get into too much, but that was by far. The no, let's get into that for sure. What was he? What was he trying to get involved in? It was not related to the case whatsoever. Basically, what was happening with this was you've got Code Sr. obviously furious that his son is in this situation to begin with, and you've got Bowen Sr. who is in part responsible. You can't call him completely culpable because he's not, but. It, you know, in part, the reason why uh, Code Jr. Is, is involved here. And so, as but no means other than to um, toss out a memorable quote that the jury surely will have ringing in their ears. And just to further diminish the character of Brian Bowen Sr., 
uh, Merle Coach Sr. said, you know, is it or is it not true that when you landed in New York, you reached out to, I think it was Dawkins, but I don't know for sure. Um, I'm pretty sure it was Dawkins and texted, you know, expletive, expletive, I need to get some, mm. And so when, <laughs> when that happens, I mean, the objection, it was out of a TV courtroom scene. The immediate objection, the immediate heavy-handed sustain from Judge Kaplan, you know, code uh, senior being up there, understanding, knowing what was fully coming, it was it was an incredible moment, and will have no um, no impact on uh, <laughs> on the on the on the remainder of the questioning going forward. But anyway, as for Bowen, so his family is looking to get money to have him. Uh, otherwise, they're going to leave Adidas to go play for a different Nike team. Chris Rivers, who's not on trial in this case, but is an Adidas grassroots executive that you and I both know. In fact, who was heavily involved. Uh, when the Lamelo Ball crap happened in Vegas in 2017, and the the uh, Lavar Ball going after the female official and all that stuff, one of the guys that we were dealing with a lot, or at least I was, was Chris Rivers, because he was the you know basically the guy that was overseeing that massive Adidas Gauntlet tournament that was happening in Las Vegas. Well, Rivers has brought get, has been brought into this trial um, one because he was kind of. Heading up a lot of these guys, you know, Gasnola and and Code and other people on, on Adidas's Black Ops thing, and he even writes an email at one point that says, "Hey, listen, don't put any of the Black Stuff Ops in on paper." <laughs> but he's doing this on an email. He's doing this on paper. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? Um, anyway, Rivers is involved not as much as the other characters early on with Bowen, uh, Bowen the second or Bowen Junior. I, I guess it's the second. I've I've heard it referred to both, but that's beside the point. Um, so money gets delivered there. Uh, Bowen Sr. Uh, testifies that Rivers delivers like $18,000 at one point when they're getting 25000 And this this whole pattern continues, obviously, as Bowen's recruitment goes on. Um, I don't want to just burrow hole after hole after hole, but then you, you get into all the DePaul stuff, which is frankly just doesn't look good. The Creighton stuff doesn't look good at all. Um and then Gasnola just he becomes sort of a a periphery on that, and then he gets concerned uh, because Dawkins starts running his mouth about Bowen getting a hundred thousand dollars to go to Louisville and all that stuff. Um, he was the least interesting one as it pertained to Gasnola's testimony overall. Uh, I'm going to save D'Souza for last because he is he is the active player that's still involved in this. As for Aiton. The context around Aiton, and I, I think that there he still could come up next week, frankly. Uh, I think he and Sean Miller could come up. Uh, we wait and see if Sean Miller being uh, on the phone on wiretap gets played in this trial or not. To me, that's arguably the biggest will it happen or will it not remaining in, the, in this specific case or not uh, because that is Dawkins talking to him, and Dawkins is on trial here. It would not stand to reason that that call would get played at the next trial or the one after that. Uh, with Aiton, Gasnola testifies, you know, obviously identified as an elite talent at a young age, wanting to get in with Aiton, wanting to get Aiton to Kansas, okay? And Gasnola testifies that this was only one of the really new things, I think notable things to come out in the afternoon session on Thursday, which was largely kind of boring, and the defense was just stumbling over its questions and not getting anywhere. But 
Gasnola did testify that he attempted to get permanent housing and set up a job for Aiton's mother in Kansas in an effort to get Aiton to Kansas. Gasnola also testified um, right around that time on Thursday that he felt he let Bill Self down by failing to get Aiton to Kansas. Um, I think those are relevant pieces of information. What we don't know is the other half of the coin. Uh, in terms of Aiton getting to Arizona. But $15,000 was delivered when Aiton was a junior in high school to, again, Larnell. Shout out to Larnell, okay? Shouts to Larnell. Without a doubt, shouts to, Larn- shouts to Larnell, uh, who then was um, believed to be giving it to, to Aiton's mother. That did not gain traction. Um, defense was not allowed to really get into why it didn't gain traction. Uh, objections based on relevance, hearsay, uh, what have you. Uh but there you have it. I, I think Aiton is still open-ended at this point. All right. Dennis Smith Jr. is the fourth player. Now, he gets two payments. And as I said in the last podcast, this was, this was just one of those things that when Dennis Smith – like I remember watching Dennis Smith Jr. in Las Vegas at Adidas. And just the general feeling was like Dennis Smith Jr. is getting paid to go to NC State. Everyone knows it. But – as journalists, we cannot we cannot corroborate this information to publish. But this was one of the bigger ones of the past five, six years, in my opinion. Well, now we know, obviously, this is the case. So he gets two different payments. One's when he's a junior in high school. The second payment comes after he is committed, but before he enrolls. He enrolls in January 2016. The payment comes in November of 2015. And the reason it comes in part, as we now learn... And there's still going to be more with this, I think, next week because the defense is trying to show that the money didn't come from Adidas. It came from a money guy named Martin Fox who's out of Houston. And I was told by a source that, you know, a lot of players that have come out of Houston, uh, good, bad, or otherwise, have have come across Fox. um, And he has been just a figure of of varying influence in the lives of pro prospects out of Houston in the past, you know, seven to ten years or whatever. So the defense is trying to say, listen, this money that went to, to Smith, it, it, in fact, might not have been Adidas. It, it might it might have actually come from him. We'll see where they're going with that, uh, with that overall. But anyway, the point is, word circles back to Gasnola and the guys at Adidas and Gatto that there is some some needing to, quote, calm the situation about Dennis Smith Jr. Um, and, and everything at NC State. And so they, they figure, okay, well, $40,000, you know, that should, that should probably be able to do it. Gasnola testified that he went to former NC State assistant Orlando Early, who, for the record, I have tried to reach for content, comment and has not responded um, about all of this. They asked Gasnola what Early said when he discussed this, and his quote was, I don't recall. And then the quote is, but he didn't say no. And the tone of Gasnola when he said that particular sentence um, really landed heavy for me. So what happens here is Gasnola gets on a plane with $40,000. And that's another thing. Like earlier in the trial, uh, Parrish, one thing links to another, links to another. Like you had Bowen Sr. trying to figure out like if he needed to drive halfway across the country with cash or could he sneak $20,000 onto a plane if he was going to do it, how he was going to do it. Like so much of this stuff, man, is is wild in the moment and we're writing furiously because, again, I can't bring my phone. I can't bring a recorder in. So everything that's said, like just furiously writing on a notepad and if you read any quotes in my story or hear them here, they're 100% accurate. There's a lot of quotes I wrote. But if I'm listening to it on a wiretap call or they're saying in testimony and I don't have it all, I don't have the confidence. And frankly, um, 
will not go with it if I don't have the, the quote exactly right. So you've got Casnola flying out of Hartford into Raleigh. First class as always. He would stay in the nicest hotels. He'd ra- he'd rack up huge expenses that would get repaid by Adidas uh, in this consultant role. And he goes to Orlando's Early's house. Early is there. He gives us the forty thousand dollars with the understanding that Early is going to deliver the forty thousand dollars to uh, to a, a trainer um, of Dennis Smith Jr.'s. And from there, you know, it's done. Whatever's done is done. There was no testimony that. that this is really immaterial, but there was no testimony that uh, the family of Dennis Smith Jr. was ever paid once he was on campus and a student for a year and a half at NC State. But regardless, it's a terrible look for NC State in this regard. That's the only only instance here um, with Gasnola that an assistant not only had knowledge, but actually helped transact money. He moved it from one person to the next against the rules. The only other thing we have of that for sure is Kenny Johnson giving Brian Bowen Sr. $1,300 outside of Sr.'s apartment in Louisville in September of 2017. And even then, Kenny Johnson says this is going to be a one-time deal. This, of course, happens like six weeks after Kenny Johnson claims, well, they meet at a gas station that he didn't even really know that he was supposed to be paying to begin with. That's another deal altogether. But that's not a good look for NC State. Obviously, um, not a good look for Early or Mark Godfrey, who is now the coach at Cal State Northridge. And that school is yet to uh, put out a statement, I believe, in relation to what happened here. All right. And last, we have Silvio D'Souza, um, obviously still at Kansas, eligible at Kansas. A couple things here with him. You had a Kansas compliance director that was brought in. Got into some, some stuff here and there that... Uh, at this point just doesn't feel too too relevant like but the fact that Kansas didn't complete proper paperwork with Billy Preston on official visits and stuff it's it's not a good it's not a good look for Kansas um at all or the prosecution but okay DeSousa he's eligible right now the compliance director said that um and that is my understanding now here's why it is in part uh, DeSousa's guardian, Fenny Falmain, gets paid $2,500 to help pay for night classes for Silvio DeSousa prior to getting to Kansas and what I would spe- suspect to be necessary classes in order for him to clear uh, admissions to Kansas and or the NCAA's standards for a uh, Division One student-athlete. So he gets $2,500. And at this point, um, as Gastonel is testifying, there's a booster at Maryland paying $60,000 to Falmain and there then becomes a battle over, okay, you know, do we want to get DeSousa off of Under Armour and to Adidas in Kansas, and, and are we going to match that 60000 So they, they set up a payment plan for first for 20000 And the only reason why Silvio DeSousa's guardian, Fenny Falmain, did not receive $20,000, Gasnola's own words were uh, because of this investigation. Like, because the story breaks when it breaks, everything halts. Okay, so if you're a Kansas fan and your final four never gets vacated and Silvio D'Souza averages 14 and seven this year and helps you to another one seed and never winds up having an issue with his eligibility, be thankful that this case happened to begin with. Now, maybe nothing gets found out ever at all, but that's why his eligibility is still out there right now. It is pretty interesting, and they, Kansas remains pretty adamant that he is uh, that he is going to be eligible. But I will let say me, this. Let, let me stop you there. Okay. I, I do believe that he'll be eligible, if only because the NCAA is probably not going to rule on him. Right. You can't play him, though, can you? You have I, to hold him out. I guess so, because here's the other thing. You can still punish schools. I don't know if this is going to be the case, though, because it was supposedly no one at the school involved in this. You, for, for intent. 
The NCAA, if you're, it, yeah, yeah. And that. if your amateur status is compromised, your amateur status is compromised. Yeah, I agree. I, but I, like, here, here's what I think. I think it would be insane for Kansas to play him, and it, it, like they could, they could be on track to win a national championship this season. You don't want to have to look back and because you played somebody who it was alleged in federal court had his amateur status compromised just because the NCAA hasn't ruled on it yet. Like, oh, well, we'll just play him and hope for the best. I, I wouldn't. Again, I'll let their compliance people make that decision. They, they, they know the ins and outs of this more than you and I, but I'll, I'll be surprised if he's in uniform at the Champions class. I also, we have to bring this up, okay? Uh, Silvio D'Souza's guardian is Bruno Fernando's guardian. Bruno right. Fernando plays at Maryland, okay? So if you're Maryland, an athletic department that's already faced serious, heavy, legitimate fire this year for what happened with the football player who was killed after the workout, like I'm, I'm sure Maryland has, has done the investigations it feels necessary that it needs to have been done. But you have new information under oath coming out publicly disclosed that the Guardian was accepting, why would he do one and not the other? You have to ask that question if you're Maryland. You have to be satisfied. You have to clear this. Uh, just To me, that is very vulnerable for the, for the Terrapins right now. So just this is, this is how there can be uh, unintended consequences for other schools that aren't directly on trial here, but ones who have been implicated overall. And I still think next week is going to bring more information. Like it didn't stop because it, you know this week was done. I, I st- Gasnola's still on the stand. Um, I, I still think we can get more, and we don't know who they're going to wrap up with. All the witnesses. Gasnola's not the last witness for the prosecution. They still have more to come. And by the way, just real quick for any uh, future guardians of elite basketball prospects, if you take sixty thousand dollars from a booster and decide you want to go to a different school, you don't have to pay it back. There's not really anything they can do. <laughs> Like, what are they going to do? Incriminate themselves? Exactly. Yeah, like, what are you doing? What a, Amateur hour. Like, dude, okay, you got your $60,000? Now just go do what you want to do. What are they going to do? Call the NCAA on themselves? Like, do you, do you, do you just chalk it up? People do that all the time. Like, I, I've heard about players taking money from agents and then just uh, going with another agent. And it's like, what are you going to do? You're going to go. You're going to go tell the NCAA that you were paying me? While I was a student athlete, you're gonna go tell like, and, and you're gonna go tell the, you're gonna file a lawsuit against me, and admit that you were breaking, uh, major NCAA rules about paying me. Lie, you just chalk it up as a loss. So, um, you know, Sylvia D'Souza, Bruno Fernando's uh, guardian, he doesn't seem to have a good grasp on how to go about doing this stuff. Like, honestly, like, you, you, there should be a, a certain code involved. If you're going to take 60 grand from somebody, you need to go to the school, probably where you took the 60 grand from. But if you do decide to go somewhere else, you ain't got to pay it back. I bet you he was never going to pay it back. I think he was just double dipping. Uh, of course. Why wouldn't you, man? I Come would. On. Let, me, let me be the guardian of somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be somebody's guardian. I want to be Larnell. I have to, I have to add, before we wrap up, this is uh, just one more thing on Dennis Smith Jr. It's it's just it was just a funny moment. Like Borzell and I looked at each other when this happened. So they show this text message. So Dennis Smith, Adidas spends all this money, all this time, trying to get Dennis Smith Jr. Right? Plays at NC State, fantastic freshman. They miss the tournament. Godfrey gets fired. Dennis Smith Jr. declares, gets drafted, lottery pick, and he goes with Under Armour. So that didn't go to plan, and. 
shortly thereafter. Now NC State's, NC State's probably going to have to vacate that dunk he had in camera. Hey, they have to vacate the dunk. Correct. Hashtag vacate oh, no. the dunk. Uh, there's no doubt vacate about that. Vacate the dunk. <laughs> Without a doubt. So there's a text message. Uh, I, I, I don't know why this struck us so funny, but there's a text message between Gasnola and Gatto um, about Dennis Smith Jr. Um, their disrespect is out of control. Uh, it's Gasnola saying, you know, the disrespect is out of control with Dennis. I can't believe this. He's just ticked off that he didn't stick with Adidas. <laughs> and that text gets sent at 4.30. At 4.31, Gatto just simply replies, Jalen Brown had a good game last night. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> like, 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 it was just, I don't know. It was, uh, it was so funny the context in which they brought that up in. And I don't know who Jalen Brown is signed to, by the way. Nike for all I know. I don't know. But, uh, but it was just, uh, it was funny because um, Gaston was just ticked off beyond belief. And it's almost just like Gatto's just, he knows it's, it's just too far gone anyway. Like, we just got to move on, man. Let me ask you this. Do we have a theory for why Brian Bowen Sr. is trying to protect Oregon, Tony Stubblefield? Because that was bizarre. Don't um, get it. Yeah. Like, so the allegation is that Tony Stubblefield at Oregon gave him three grand. And this was like, gave him three grand, not 40 years ago, but like literally in last year. Um, and he says, I don't recall. And again, I was talking to a Big Ten coach yesterday. This is... A yes or no answer. Mm-hmm. Like there is, it's impossible to not recall whether mm-hmm. uh, Pac-12 assistant gave you three thousand dollars cash. The answer is either yes, he did, or no, he didn't. But that's not the I don't recall thing. Like, hey, uh, what did you eat for lunch uh, on October fourth, uh, two thousand fifteen? I don't recall. I that don't makes recall. sense. Did an assistant coach at Oregon give you three grand cash? I don't recall. What are you talking about? You don't recall. That's it, it, like yes or no. And so the answer is clearly yes. Like I, I'm just going to assume that that happened. And uh, so why, 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 why try to protect Oregon and Tony Stubblefield? What is the what? What would be the motivation there? I could not even imagine. I I can't imagine. Parish, you're under oath. You've cut a deal with the government. I can't imagine. Uh, and by the way, just for context here, that question gets brought up by the defense. It gets brought up by Dawkins's lawyer. Um, he brings in Tony Stubblefield, the lawyer. He brings in the $3,000 figure, the lawyer does, and then he says he doesn't recall. There was also a, uh, a separate question about UCLA that was not as specific that Bowen Sr. also said he couldn't recall. But we're talking about a guy who had a bat phone. He referred to it as a bat phone. He talked to Christian Dawkins on his bat phone. And if you're, if you're someone who has a bat phone, and yet at the same time can't recall certain money deals, it's just a little bit shady. All right, last thing before we get out of here. Obviously, the trial uh, uh, continues on Monday. They were not in the courtroom uh, today, which is uh, Friday. Um, What do we expect next week? And when are we ultimately going to know if these men are guilty or not guilty? Is there a time frame on it? Yeah, okay, so next week... The prosecution will wrap with its witnesses, at least it should, barring, you know, extended testimony. I I really don't think that'll happen with Gastonola. He should be done by Monday. They'll bring in two more witnesses they're planning, and then the defense will get their shot. I don't know how many and who they're bringing in. Uh, As of Wednesday morning, when the lawyers talk to the judge, and this is when the jury's not in the room and there are no uh, witnesses in the room, 
the plan was for them to be putting the case in the jury's hands uh, the week of October 22nd, meaning, at least I took that to mean uh, that by Thursday, October 18th, or, or yeah, Thursday, October 18th, because there was no trial on Fridays, um, closing arguments would be done. So best case scenario, I think you have closing arguments on starting Wednesday, finishing Thursday, are all done on Thursday. There is the possibility that closing arguments go into the Monday, October 22nd, Tuesday, October 23rd. I have no feel on how long it will take the jury to be out on this and to make a decision, but uh, the judge did say it doesn't look like that they're going to have to go into November with this, but that was before Gasnola's testimony started taking much longer than they expected. I think he has delayed the trial at least one day from what it was expected as of Wednesday morning, but that's uh, I think we're going to be wrapped up by October, and when we do our next podcast, um, I think we'll have new information that we will be discussing, and we can obviously also, if if we so please, and I certainly would like to, uh, start tapping into some preseason chatter and stuff that's happening on the court. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry M. Fatigle. Shouts to Larnell. And remember, you can subscribe to the Island College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcast. Rated favorably. Five stars. Five stars. And then also type a, a nice comment or two or whatever. Uh, that's all we ask from you. And we're going to be here again next week. Till then, take care. <laughs>